Father, to think that we can come into the presence of the sovereign God, as small as we are and frail as we are, and as failing as we are, it is a blessed thought and a humbling thought. We know, Lord, that we don't come before you because we have any righteousness or worthiness in ourselves, but that you have imputed righteousness to us through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. And we just give you praise for that truth. As we live in this world where it seems to be getting darker and darker every, every year, every month even, we know that you are yet the bright and blazing light, the consuming fire that is at work. And we're so thankful for lives that are being transformed and for men and women who are pursuing God and, and seeking to live the truth. And I pray that we will be, each one of us, people who live the truth. Uh, that we are not hearers only of the word, but doers, and that the world can see that the truth of Christ is in us because of our obedience and because of the love that we have one for another. Lord, bless this hour, I pray. Be present with us as we study your word. Illuminate our minds by the power of your spirit. And we ask that throughout this uh, campus this morning, you will be at work in the service and in every class, that your name will be exalted and your will accomplished. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. If you'll turn to the 11th chapter of the book of Numbers, I'd like to read beginning at verse 16. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and will put him upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you shall not bear it all alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat it. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am are six hundred thousand on foot. Yet thou hast said, I will give them meat in order that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. This is, of course, one of the great dramas of the Old Testament and one of the great prayers of Moses. As I emphasized to you last time and, and even as we were talking earlier, earlier this morning, Honesty in prayer is the best kind of prayer you can pray. You know, just, just come before God and tell him what's on your heart, because he knows anyway. And being honest before him uh, helps us to, to reckon, reckon with who he is and who we are. And Moses is a prime example of this. We, we saw that he came before God to say, God, I've got all these people to take care of. You know, did I birth them? <laughs> no. Uh, but you've given me this responsibility, and they're griping and complaining, and, and I can't handle it anymore, and, and if you're not going to do it, Lord, then kill me. Well, you know, 
he's pretty much at the bottom of the barrel at that point. And, and God says, I'm not going to kill you, and I'm not going to take the responsibility from you, but I, I will give you some help. And as I emphasized at the end of class last time, that's what God is here to do. God has not called us into the Christian life to just kind of jump in the middle of the pool and see if you can swim, you know, and drown. No, he has put us in the Christian life to, to be there with us, you know, to uphold us with his righteous right hand and, and to go before us and to go alongside us and to go behind us. I mean, he's, he's like Israel was to the tabernacle, all around it as it marched, as it was carried on the journey. Uh, and so God is with his people. And so he told Moses to select 70 elders of good reputation. And I guess this is really the last thing I emphasized last time when we read from 1 Timothy, the passage that talks about elders in the church. God wants the leadership of the church to be not just outstanding men of the community because they you know, are wealthy or, or because they're well-known, but people who live the faith they proclaim, who on their job, in their home, as well as in the church, are like-minded people. They, they reflect Christ, they, they live honestly, uprightly, and in a way that brings glory to his name in whatever circumstance. They're not two-faced, or as James says, double-minded men who are unstable in all their ways. And, and unfortunately, in the history of the church, there have been too many people like that in leadership, and it still is true today, uh, particularly in, in much of this country where you have people in leadership who defame the name of Christ because of their rotten reputation in the community. That's not what God wants. And so he was to select leaders, elders, who had a reputation to support their proclamation of being God's people. <laughs> now God has taken care of that matter. Then he says, all right, Moses, the problem that got this whole thing going, I'm going to deal with too. I'm going to give these people meat until they are sick to death of meat. Their desire was to satisfy their fleshly appetite. And uh, the people were complaining, as we read there, we should never have left Egypt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this phrase in verse 18 just really gets me. It says, for we were well off in Egypt. <laughs> well off? Good night. You know, it, it just shows you how far people are willing to sink to satisfy their own fleshly appetites. And, and of course, we all deal with this. You know, the, the Scripture tells us that we deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the three great enemies. And, and you know, the devil we think we can deal with because we can say, be gone, you know, be bound, and, and so forth. But unfortunately, we, he has an ally inside us. <laughs> it's called our flesh. And, and our flesh sneaks up on us when we're not prepared. You know, and just in the middle of something else, all of a sudden a fleshly appetite jumps up. And it's a, it's a situation that makes it so that we have to be on guard all the time. And that's why being in the Word and in prayer is so vital to, to survival in the Christian life. And I mean survival. <laughs> what, what is happening here and what God points out to Moses is that by saying what they're saying, we want meat, give us meat, why did we ever leave Egypt? What they're saying is that they are rejecting God's salvation, they are rejecting God's provision, and that means they're rejecting God. That's the bottom line. They're rejecting God. Now this happens again 400 years later. When, when Israel decides, after they've been led by the prophets for a while, and by the judges and prophet Samuel, that we want a king. We don't want to be like, you know, unlike the other nations. We want to be like the other nations. We want to have a king. 
And they griped and complained, and, and Samuel said, cool it, guys. This isn't the way God wants it to be. And finally, God uh, said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they have said to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They rejected me. And really, as, as we walk the Christian life and, and as we look at the church and, and consider the situation uh, in the world today, we have to constantly be looking for the bottom line because the froth on top is, is, is very confusing. And we can be very confused as we look at the world today and we see that this church and that church and the other church is, is proclaiming this, that, and the other thing. And, and the way that they minister is, is this way and a different church is that way and each claims it's the best. But where's the bottom line in this all? Is the bottom line that they are walking obediently with God? Because whatever you proclaim and, and however you go around trying to buttonhole and drag others into the kingdom, it isn't going to work unless people see the reality of the faith that you're proclaiming, unless they see it in daily action. When the going gets tough, uh, there was a professor I had years ago uh, at college, in, at Christian College, well, it was Simpson College when it was in San Francisco, and he, he was giving a, a testimony one day in one of the le uh, lessons that he was teaching, and he was saying that one of the ways by, he was in the service, and he had been saved before he got in the service, and he said one of the ways by which uh, the men understood that my testimony was true was one day when I was working, he was on a ship, and he was working with some heavy stuff, and, and two pieces fell together and caught his thumb right in between them and smashed his thumb. And, you know, he howled out, but, you know, not a single oath came out of his mouth, you know, not a, not a vile word of any kind at all. Is this kind of like, you know, kind of thing. And the others stood around, and they knew that's not how they would react. And they said to him, well, you know, obviously, <laughs> your faith must mean something to you because, you know, you didn't, you know, the old nature didn't pour itself out here uh, at this point. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where the, the, you know, the rubber hits the road. You have rejected me from being king, is what God is saying to Israel. But, you know, Moses reacts to this situation, too. And again, in all honesty, he says, God, oh, go ahead. I was just thinking, um, perspective-wise, the Israelites were looking at being well off in Egypt because they had what they understood as security. This is true. They had a home, they had a job, they weren't moving, they, did, they knew at least what life was going to be like, whereas in the desert, it was, like you said, complete trust. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so hard for us, too. You know, yes, we feel good about our God when everything's secure according to our definition. And God says, why are you rejecting me when I'm in sovereign control of your life and you don't have a job and you're losing your house and your kids are sick and whatever the case may be? Mm -hmm. And we have that same problem. This is true. Because we define security according to what the world around us defines as security. And they thought they had that security in Egypt. And we think that we have that security with what we own and what we do. Very good. Excellent point. And yes, this is very true. Uh, we, we need to put it in, into our own, um, our own situations. And as I've said, tried to emphasize before, uh, we walk in the sandals of the children of Israel a great deal. And as I have studied Israel through the Old Testament, I have come to the place where I am a lot less critical of them in the, in the sense that, how dare they do such a thing, you know? I look at that and say, yep, <laughs> but for the grace of God, there will go I, you know? 
uh, I could do the same thing and, and you know, I'm not immune from it even now. And so that's, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Security is a big thing for all of us. And none of us likes to be insecure. But God, God being our security, and I guess it's coming to the point where our faith is strong enough to, to believe in a God we can't actually touch. No, no flesh and, and blood there, you know. And there is a lot of confusion, too, that comes from the fact that you hear different messages from different people about how you're supposed to have faith and what faith means. And unfortunately, uh, that, that can be a real tough thing, too, because there are those who say that if this isn't happening in your life, it's because you don't have any faith. Well, you can have a great deal of faith, and life still has its bumps. It cost them the victory in the war, as the psalmist says, and he gave them their request and their lusting in the wilderness, but sent leanness into their souls. That's exactly right. And they lost the victory in the war. Yeah. It's kind of like you win the momentary battle, but lose the war, you know. You get what you want, but in the long run, you've lost it all. Moses here is, is like the disciples. God has said to him, this meat is going to be given to these people. And so Moses starts calculating. God is going to give all these people meat. Hmm, how's he going to do that? Are we going to slaughter all the herds? Well, might move a little quicker. <laughs> Would we drain all the fish from the sea? Now, we have to understand here, this is not a scientific statement. Uh, Moses has no comprehension of how many fish are in the sea. This is just a statement of hyperbole, you know, just a, a statement of you know, how much fish it would take to feed all these people. So, you remember, the, the disciples are that way. They're out in the wilderness with Jesus, and, and they have all these people going around, and uh, Jesus says, feed them. <laughs> Moses says, where am I going to get enough meat to two million people in the middle of the wilderness, you know? God responds with verse 23. Is the Lord's power limited? <laughs> Do you worship a finite God or what? Now you shall see whether my word will come true or not. That is a critical question that we all need to ask ourselves. And that's the critical question of the Christian faith. You know? Who is our God? Is he the God of Israel? And of course, we have to remind ourselves of his promises and of his mighty works. He has demonstrated that his power is not limited. He hasn't just said it's not limited. He's demonstrated that it's not limited. And that's exactly what he will do here. Jesus frequently reminded his disciples that things which were impossible for man were not impossible for God. So this whole passage pivots on verse 23. All of life hinges on faith in God's Word. If you don't have faith in God's Word that what God is saying to you is true, and that God will make it true for you as He's made it true for others, then life is going to be a, a really dark tunnel. If we don't believe, we're going to become like Israel and we're going to perish in the wilderness. But if we believe, there is no end to God's blessing. He will pour it out upon us in measureless supply. And, and what we have to do, of course, is understand that God's blessing isn't always what we want it to be. You know, sometimes we want God's blessing to be measured in dollar signs, you know, or health so that we bounce around like kangaroos all day long, you know, with, with no diminished energy and no problems. God's blessing is his presence moment by moment with our lives, his comfort, his peace, that, that great shalom that we've talked about before. That's what God's all about. Well, let's, let's look on in uh, this chapter and see what happens next. Verse 24. 
So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took of the spirit which was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And it came about that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Moses was God's spokesman. So he reported exactly his encounter with God that he had just had, his prayer and, and God's answer and what was to be done. He reported this to the people. And then he carried out God's command. He went out and handpicked 70 elders. And, you know, this, this took a period of time, certainly. And, and he undoubtedly questioned others. Now, is this man truly a man who, who lives in accordance with the word of God? Does his walk match his talk? And, and as he had 70 who were confirmed as true elders within Israel, he brought them to the tabernacle and arranged them around the tent, whatever all that meant. And then we're told that the cloud of God descended upon the tabernacle. God came down as he oft did upon the tabernacle. And the scripture tells us that he anointed the 70 elders with his spirit. We must understand that this passage does not imply that God took his spirit off of Moses, chopped it up into 71 parts, gave Moses back the 71st part, and then gave him 70 parts amongst the elders. That, of course, to us, I hope, as uh, understanders of the New Testament, is a silly thought. Uh, God simply put his, his spirit in his fullness upon the elders as he had put his spirit upon Moses. They would now be empowered to, uh, to assist Moses. To the degree that they needed the spirit of God, God's spirit was placed upon them. Now, the last sentence of verse 25 is very insightful, where it says, well, the last two sentences, and it came about that when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. When God placed His Holy Spirit upon these elders, the Scripture tells us that they prophesied, but only once. Why? Well, this prophecy, the fact that they could prophesy, that they could speak forth the Word of God, was a demonstration of the reality of the anointing of the Spirit. It was their credential. It was the validation of the fact that they were the anointed chosen elders for this responsibility. But their job was to help Moses govern the people. Their job was not to be prophets, because God already had a prophet, and that man's name was Moses. And therefore, he didn't want 70 others competing with Moses over, you know, the giving forth of God's word in the sense of revelatory information. 
Moses would remain the principal channel by which God would give further instructions to the people, not the other 70. Therefore, they did not do it again. Now, we don't know why two of these elders weren't out at the tabernacle. Scripture doesn't say why they weren't there. I think we have to assume, because God's Spirit fell on them equally with the others, that it wasn't because they had disobedient or didn't want to do it or something else, that they were probably there because they couldn't get out there. They were sick, and a guy had broken his leg, or whatever was the reason, we don't know. But the fact that God put his Spirit on them seems to indicate that they were not missing out for a illegitimate reason. But that isn't really the key of what's going on here. What's interesting here is that as they prophesied, they were in the middle of the camp. They weren't out the tabernacle. They were in the middle of the camp. And all of a sudden, these guys start speaking forth the word of the Lord. And one young man is freaked by this. <laughs> and so he goes tearing off to the tabernacle to report to Moses that, that these two men, Eldad and Medad, are speaking forth the word of the Lord. Now, obviously, it was in a manner that was unusual, or he wouldn't have been so freaked out. The scripture says that standing near Moses was Joshua, the son of Nun, who had been committed to Moses from his youth. Now, whatever that meant, I mean, he had only known Moses for a couple of years, so he must have still been fairly young here. But Joshua is called Moses Sharath here in this, translated in the, in the NASB here as attendant. To us today, that would be probably translated as right-hand man, or, or man who carried on the business of his Lord, because that is the same word that is used for Joseph in relationship to Potiphar. And you remember that Potiphar gave into Joseph's hands everything except for his wife, and he trusted it all. So Joshua has become a trusted man. Uh, alongside Moses. And you remember, Joshua was the only man allowed onto the mountain of God as Moses was receiving the word from the Lord. And of course, we know Joshua was in the process of being trained to, to take over from Moses in the future. He was, as Elisha was to Elijah, so Moses, or so Joshua seems to be to Moses here. Joshua was jealous on behalf of Moses, and I think rightly so. He viewed the prophesying of these two men in the hearing of the, of the multitude as a challenge to Moses' leadership. Because up to this moment, only Moses spoke forth the word of God in prophecy. But here are these other two men doing it. And, and they're not out at the tabernacle where they could receive this special a kind of association with God by being near the tabernacle. So... Joshua is concerned, and he thinks this is another possible source of sedition. I mean, there'd been enough sedition here. And, and I think Joshua's a little upset by it all. But Moses, I mean, Moses demonstrates the character of God here. His response, I mean, Joshua's statement is well-meaning. You know, Joshua is, is not doing this for himself. He is concerned for Moses. And so I don't think that you could in any way see a rebuke in here uh, for Joshua, but, but a, a gentle lesson, but a classic statement. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. 
you know, there is a, a tendency, uh, even within the Christian church, for people in leadership to be jealous of one another and of anybody else who might threaten their leadership position by demonstrating some kind of, uh, you know, attribute of God or, or anointing of God in some way. And that is really tragic because that's not what ministry is all about. I mean, we should be absolutely delighted when somebody in the, in the kingdom of God displays God's blessing and God's ability and God's talents and, and, and ministers, whether he's an official minister or not an official minister. You know, We should be really, really delighted and never challenged or threatened by this. Uh, but, you know, there, there's a tendency even in the Christian church for people to be kingdom builders, you know. They want to build their own little kingdom and, and have this church named after them, you know. This is the John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt Church, you know. And uh, they, they get a thrill out of this and uh, being recognized as, as the pastor of this great church, you know, or whatever, you know. And, and that is not what it's all about because this is God's work. God's work. And he didn't need a single one of us to do it. And, uh, you know, this church would get along just fine if I weren't here and if you weren't here. Now, it wouldn't get along too well if none of us were here, probably. But, <laughs> but anyway, it, it's not that God needs us. It's God, what God calls us to do. What we have here is a man of, of great humility. And one of the most wonderful attributes of God that we can have is the attribute of humility. In fact, it might be next to, to basic faith and basic love, most important attribute to have. Because the nature of God and arrogance just don't go together, you know. Scripture tells us how often that pride goeth before a fall, goeth before shame, uh, that those who would exalt themselves are going to be torn down because God loves the humble and resists the proud. And unfortunately, we can let pride sneak in because there's a kind of a religious attachment to it. But not with Moses. His humility demonstrated the reality of the Spirit of God in his life. Not just something he spoke, but the reality of it, of God's presence in this man's life. His primary concern is not his reputation. Oh, what will people think of me if others are doing what I do? His primary concern is the good of Israel and the glory of God. The good of God's people and the glory of God has got to be what every minister of the gospel is seeking. The good of God's people and the glory of the Almighty. And if that means for the particular leader stepping aside, then tch, Lord do it, you know. I'd like to read Paul's statement, which is similar to this, from the first chapter of Philippians. Beginning at verse 15, Philippians 1 some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed." And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ 
to die is gain. However they preach Christ, as long as Christ is preached. Now, it's obviously better to preach Christ uh, out of goodwill than out of the desire to hurt some other minister of the gospel. I mean, to me, it seems almost unimaginable that somebody would actually try to proclaim Christ in such a way that it would make Paul look bad. But, of course, we see Paul in a different light. He was actually walking around in those days, and, and he wasn't viewed as, as we view him today. And, of course, even our view of him is probably distorted by the fact that one church makes a saint out of all these people with an SD and a halo and all this kind of thing. And, and he was a saint, but we're all saints. And we have to remember, Paul was a man like we are, subject to the temptations and, and all the things, and, and a man who sinned, as we do, but, of course, with a special anointing of God for the writing of Scripture. Moses response here stands in very stark contrast to what we're going to be reading about when we get to the 12th chapter uh, relative to Moses' own sister and brother. But before we do that, we need to uh, look at the next section here in chapter 30, uh, 11, chapter 11 of uh, Numbers, beginning at 31 to the end. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. <laughs> and the people sp spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of the place was called Kibroth Hatava, because they were buried by the people who had because they buried the people who had been greedy. From Kibroth Hatava, the people set out for Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. A lot of speculation, as you can imagine, has been made concerning this particular passage. Uh, where did all these quail come from? There, there's the idea that maybe the quail were flying along some place, you know, they were flying along the shore of the Gulf of Aqaba or something, or maybe even the Gulf of Suez, who knows. And, and then God sent a big wind and blew them all into the Sinai, you know, and so all these quail come flying into the Sinai as a result of the wind of God. The, the passage gives us no hint where these quail come from, other than the fact that they were blown in from the sea by the wind of the Lord. Okay, that, that's all we have. That's all the information we have here uh, about where they came from. And uh, actually, the Hebrew in verse 31 is a little bit ambiguous as to these details here, as to how the birds actually became available to the people. As we read the passage here just a moment ago from the New American Standard, that seems to indicate that the quail actually fell all around the camp three feet deep for a radius of five to ten miles. Now, I, I don't know, I, I didn't try to figure this out uh, here, but uh, that's an unthinkable number of quail. <laughs> and it, it makes part of the statement in verse 32 a little irras irrational, because in, in 32 it says they gathered the quail and they spread them out for themselves around the camp, meaning to dry. But you know, if the camp is walled in by a wall of quail three feet high as far as you can see, where are you going to spread these things, you know? <laughs> <laughs> There's no place to spread them. You're already walled in by all these, all these quail. 
So many of the commentators feel that a more logical understanding of this passage and, and a way by which the Hebrew can be interpreted here is that the quail were flying around the camp at an elevation of three feet. In other words, they were flying along at three feet above the ground. And that makes a lot of sense because at three feet above the ground, they're very available. <laughs> you go out there with your bags and your nets and your club or whatever else, and you can start cleaning up on quail in a big hurry. You know, just let them fly into your bag, you know. Thum, 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 thum. <laughs> go out there with your stick and bat them down or whatever, and, and you can begin to pick up quail. And at that height, uh, of course, you know, even a child could, could collect them uh, if they wanted to. Of course, it would be more dangerous for a child since the birds would be eye high and for some of them. But in their greed, they ranged out from the camp up to a full day's journey trying to collect all these quail. Wow, I got there and bang them down and keep going off into the distance collecting quail. Well, whatever the case is, I mean, this is a miracle no matter how you look at it. However you want to look at it, it's a miracle from God. And we don't need to try to figure out all the <laughs> ins and outs of exactly how it happened. All we know is that God did this. God said, I'm going to give you quail <laughs> until it's coming out your nostrils. And so here they come. And they're coming in by the millions uh, here. Available for the taking, just like the manna. Every day, God gave them manna. It was there on the ground. They just had to pick it up. So God says, okay, this quail, these quail are going to be as available as that manna was. And here it comes. And, and the passage gives us a little interesting insight here. It says that um, the one who collected the least collected ten, ten homers. Now, one homer is equivalent to approximately six bushels. So the person who was the laziest or the weakest or whatever you might say here collected 60 bushels of quail. Now, I don't know, quail don't normally, I don't suppose, come in bushels, but nevertheless, that's the measure used here. Now, a bushel, if we use the modern interpretation of a bushel, a bushel is somewhere close to a cubic foot. Now, unless you're a mathematician and you've been into solid geometry, these volumes really play havoc with your mind. You know, I, I always used to think that you, you buy a gallon jug of milk, right? And that kind of looks like a cubic foot. You can pour seven and a half of those into a cubic foot. That can't possibly be until you try it, you know. A cubic foot, that's a lot, really, you know, when you, when you think about that. And that's one bushel. Sixty bushels. I figured that out. That's four foot by four foot by four foot. And I figured, well, how big were the quails? So big like this. <laughs> conservatively, very conservatively, without jamming them, you, you could put a thousand quail in there. Okay? That's a few birds. Now, let, let's say 600,000. Let's say not everybody went out for quail. Only the men went after quail. Now, probably it wasn't the way it was, but we've got to have some number to work with. So let's say the 600,000 went out. They each collected a thousand. That's 600 million quail. How many quail are there in the world? <laughs> I have no idea. You know. So what did God do? Bring quail from every corner of the earth here? Oh, no. I, I don't think we have to even look at it that way at all. I mean, when Jesus was out there and he says, feed the multitude, disciples, there are 5,000 men, it says, plus women and children, so conservatively looking at 15,000 people, and, and they bring up five loaves, little bitty pita breads, and five little bitty fish, uh, two little bitty fish, and he says, all right, feed them. Well, where did all that come from? Jesus broke the bread and the baskets just kept filling up. Where did it come from? 
Well, this really, I mean, I cannot believe some people. But there are liberal scholars who say, well, when this little boy did this and was willing to offer it, it shamed all the adults into actually admitting they had their lunch with them, you know. <laughs> this is in print. You know, I think, <laughs> how far do you go to try to show that God can't work miracles? I mean, why bother? Why don't you just go be a Buddhist someplace and don't bother us? I mean, God manufactured the fish and the bread on the spot, like that. And that's where the quail came from. I don't think God blew the quail from every continent to try to get them all together in one spot. He just manufactured quail on the spot, you know. <laughs> Could be, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't hear the bell. I don't really have to perform <laughs> some DNA on, on the uh, quail, find out if they all have the same DNA pattern. <laughs> anyway, um, the, these people had a great deal of uh, quail to eat. And again, it was an expression of the fact that as God had said back in verse 23, is the Lord's power limited? <laughs> can he do this? He sure can. <sighs> Now, the people, one commentator thinks that this thing was a frantic thing. People were running around screaming and bumping into each other, trying to grab it. It's kind of like a, a, you know, a craze here. Well, I, I don't know if that was the way it was. But uh, they were out collecting quail, and uh, they wanted to make sure they had plenty of quail. So, you know, the least collected ten homers, that who, who, how many did the most collect, you know? Must have had a mountain of quail sitting outside his tent, you know? <laughs> Then they took them and they spread them out. You know, I don't know. It doesn't even say whether they feathered them or what they did, but spread them out there so that they would dry in the sun. Then they pigged out on the quail. Now, personally, because of my own tastes, I like to believe that they plucked them and cooked them before they ate them. Well, one commentator says they may have just been ripping into these birds <laughs> out of crazy lust, your you know, ultimate gluttony. Well, I don't know if they were that bad off, but whatever the case may be, and, and that isn't even the point of the whole thing. The point is their attitude here. Their all-consuming <laughs> desire was to satisfy the momentary lust of the flesh, even as we read last time about Esau. I mean, Esau is such a case in point. Give me some of that red lentil stuff there. Because if, if, if I don't eat it, my birthright doesn't mean a thing to me because I'm going to die of starvation. Oh, baloney, you know. But anyway, you know, that he gave away. His, why did he give away his birthright? Because it was meaningless to him. It wasn't because he was really starving. It was because it was meaningless to him. And so why are these people lusting after these quail? Is it because they are going to die if they don't have quail? No, it's because God does not really have any meaning to them. They have not come to a place of genuine faith in the living God. He has demonstrated himself over and over again, and yet there are within the community of, of God's people those who do not really believe. Now, obviously, we're not talking about everybody here, because when God sends his plague in, it just says those who were greedy died, which implies there were those who weren't greedy. Now, that probably doesn't mean that there weren't those who weren't willing to eat the quail. God doesn't look on the fact that you've got quail in your mouth or not, or quail piled around your tent or not. He looks at the heart. Why have you got quail? Why are you lusting after the things of the world, which is what the quail, of course, represent? The world and, and all of its desires. And, and that's 
what God was looking at here. While, I, I mean, the irony here is, is so powerful in verse 33. While the meat was still between their teeth before it was even chewed, the Lord struck the people with a severe plague. I mean, the direct, what they were looking for was the pleasure of eating meat. And what did they get? Death. Uh, what better picture is there of the world? We lust after the world and we want it, but before you can actually really enjoy it, you're dead. I mean, spiritually, you're dead. And, and, and physically, it'll come a lot quicker, too, usually. <clears throat> all we have to do is look around today at the people who are dying all around us of horrible diseases and conditions that are, in many cases, the result of their lust. What is their sin here? Their, their sin is un thankfully rejecting the provision of God. He had given them manna every single day. And, and we read the description twice. It was a wonderful food. It looked good, smelled good, tasted good, was always there, and gave you perfect health. Now, what kind of a fool would reject that, you know, if you look at it from... But again, as, as Beth was saying, when you put yourself in that actual condition, and you've walked for a while in the, in the sandals of the... Um, Israelites, you, you, it's easy to begin to think of the fact that, well, you know, that stuff back there wasn't all that bad. You know, we used to have leeks and garlics and uh, onions and fish, and, 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 and life was secure back there. And, and right now, we're not really sure. God says we're going to the land of Canaan, but where are people living there? <laughs> and how are we going to get control of it? And, and it's tough out here in the desert. You know, one of the things they were complaining about was the difficulty of the journey. Not just the lack of variety in their diet, but the difficulty of the journey was one of the things they were griping about. So they were unthankfully rejecting the provision of the Lord, and they were pursuing their own licentiousness, giving total way to the momentary desire of the flesh. I gotta have bird, <laughs> and, and, and I'll die if I don't have quail today. It is rare. <laughs> That we'll die from not getting something our flesh cries out for. You know, that's rare. You know, maybe after several months of nothing to eat, you know, we might give way. But, uh, you know, normally the, the desire of the flesh is not because there is a real genuine need there. It's because our flesh is at war with our spirit. And we have not fed our spirit. We have not studied the word. We have not prayed. And therefore the flesh overcomes the spirit. And, and we do the things of the flesh. That's why the scripture says, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Our minds are to be transformed. And as they're transformed, then, then we see things in proper relationship and we recognize what is valuable and what is not valuable. What is good for us and what is not good for us. What is unfortunate about this is we, we, we can momentarily arrive at that position and I can say, I know this is good and that's bad. I'm going to do what's good. And I choose to do what's good. That's wonderful. But the problem is there's tomorrow and the next day. And we have to keep doing that over and over again because God doesn't just plug us in and say, aha, you've chosen right and from now on you're never going to be tempted to do wrong and you're always going to do right. No, he, he lets us walk in this world. And, and the idea is that we need to walk hand in hand with him so that our spirits are connected and thus we have the strength to resist temptation. And when we stumble, he picks us up. Because you know, his hand is not far away. His arm is not shortened that he cannot save. And so he picks us up and say, my son, my daughter, you have failed, but let's walk on from here. And pursuing that is, is God's 
plan. When they saw the quail, who was furthest from their thoughts? <laughs> the Lord. Did they say, oh, this is God's wonderful provision for us. Let me have a couple. No, they said, let me have thousands, you know. <laughs> As we read last week in Philippians chapter 3, there were people, Paul says, there were people whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. We're told that God judged these people here with a severe plague. We're not told what the plague is, but it was a deadly plague because the scripture says they had to bury those who had been greedy. How they died, we're not told either. But we know that it was a significant number that died, not just a couple, because they commemorated this disaster by naming the place. They said, this place is now in our history going to be known as Kibroth Hatava. Kibroth meaning graves, Hatava meaning desire or greed. So we're talking about graves of greed. Graves of greed. This place is known as graves of greed. Boy, if that could be just emblazoned, you know, in the world. Graves of greed. You're all headed for graves of greed. Well, the people were thoroughly chastised again. <laughs> Won't be the last time. And uh, with a renewed fear of God. And so they leave this place, I think, rather willingly. And, and you know, the thought of a quail was probably a very undesirable thought at that moment. Give me some mama, manna. And they headed out for Hazaroth, where they would stop for a while. And another problem would break out again. I mean, more rebellion in the camp, only this time at the top. Miriam and Aaron. Why should you just lead Israel alone, Moses? What about us? Well, we'll look at that next week.